Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. I am pumped. What is up, podcast listeners, digital agency owners? I am really excited to have you guys here today. We have one of my favorite guests on our program, Sheldon Pereira, who has been a a mentor of our, our boot campers and also a boot camp graduate. Uh, but Sheldon's career actually starts way back in 1997 when he graduated the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. Then he went and worked for uh, General Dynamics Canada, a national defense contractor for nearly a decade, building secure databases and web-based applications, which eventually he decided to leave and uh, start freelancing and formed his own company, Aquanode Interactive, back in 2004. And uh, Sheldon also uh, touts a rank of number 10 in his intercompany foosball league, which I'm not sure is a very good rank. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that. Maybe we won't. But we're really excited to have Sheldon Pereira on our program today. Hey, thanks for having me, Brad. Sheldon, I'm going to start off with a question that I think is really exciting and kind of a little bit of a story, I guess. And and it'll end with a question. When you graduated boot camp, I can't remember how many months it was following, but you landed a $500,000 project. And that I think was maybe the largest, maybe the second largest or, or tied for the largest project that anybody had ever signed uh, following boot camp. Can you tell us what a $500,000 project feels like? Well, it, it's surprisingly not what you'd think. It's actually a lot of chaos and um, overwhelming anxiety when, when you first take on a scope that large, uh, to be honest. You know, we were bidding that project as I you know, before I was in boot camp, all the way through boot camp, and uh, didn't close it till after graduation. You know, nine months of bidding followed by uh, a two and a half year commitment. It's it's a lot. There's there's some scope and um, management efforts that far exceed you know anything else we've ever done. You know, the ability that we have to cross off every task and make sure that everything is managed while. We have turnover, our clients have turnover, and funding um, has changed as it relates to government projects, which uh, which this was. You know, there's a lot of, of potential for negative client experience, I think, in that type of a, a project, that type of a scope at that size. And, and what what's happened is, you know, we've really had to get much better at managing those types of, of liabilities and those types of risks. And... Um, to the point where the effort just to manage it far exceeds the size and scope of some, you know, much smaller projects. So there's certainly a lot more effort involved. And I, I think you have to really address those types of projects with that in mind and understand that the pitfalls, much as there's a much greater upside, um, come with a much greater downside as well. And, and they really do warrant your, your time and attention um, such that you can have a very positive outcome just as you can at smaller uh, scopes is is that kind of a project a 
typical project for you in your business now, or tell me a little about the range of work you do just from a budgetary size, just to give us a little bit of a picture of where you're at right now. Yeah, sure. We we try and float between the thirty to hundred thousand dollar range. That's a very typical project for us. We we did spin up a separate company called uh, Lumino Lumino Web, uh, primarily to focus on the smaller projects that we were traditionally saying no to. You know, we didn't want to leave that money on the table anymore, and we have a very solid offering there now. But even at a hundred thousand dollars, you know, the the level of management and um, ability to turn over, let's say between four months and, and 12 months, we don't have to invest nearly as much from an effort and project management perspective as we do at the $500,000 level. Do you think that there's like a certain size of a budget or is it the amount of people that are involved with a timeline? At what point does the project culture or risk change is kind of what I'm hearing from you is there's, it's just a different culture, a different type of project, different potential outcomes than working with some smaller budgets within your more comfortable range. At what point does that that change for you? Well, with two factors. First, the sheer volume of scope, and, and you know, going from 100 to 200 even really does have more than a 2x effect on the sheer volume of of tasks to complete and the management and the tools used to to ensure that that's facilitated. But then there's also ancillary effects that we don't really plan on. You know, when you take on a multi-year project, you have people assigned to things for multiple years, as logic would would force you to believe. But you don't really appreciate the extent to which people like working on new things and like moving around and like feeling like they're part of a fast-moving and agile environment. Um, And so we have, you know, even just anecdotally had to make changes to our own internal processes to ensure that people were moving around and that there was still opportunity on other projects and that everyone was satiated from a career perspective, much as the project was... um, being serviced in a very progressive fashion. So, you know, lots of learning all around uh, as you progress out of that comfort zone. Can you paint me a picture of your agency, Aquanode, right now? And you also just mentioned a spinoff brand, but uh, paint me a picture of what it's like to walk into your business right now and what it looks like. So when you walk in, the impression that we want you to have immediately is that you're in a fun and progressive environment. And and we've gone through a lot of pain and trouble to ensure that that is the case. So when you step in, you're welcomed into a lobby. There's uh, a couple of logos on the wall, but the biggest sign that you'll see is hello. And, And that type of culture and messaging carries throughout the office and it carries throughout the the engagements I have with my staff. There's uh, 11 of us. And, um, you know, predominantly a hardcore coding facility um, now split, as, as I mentioned, between two different um, web providers, one focusing on apps, one on, on lower margin projects, lower value projects, sorry. And the culture really does matter to us. So you can walk around and you can see our, our ridiculous um, tarot card posters that tout um, you know, Stack Overflow is almost like a deity um, where Internet Explorer is. Internet Explorer literally has uh, the tarot card with like seven swords through a gentleman's back and he's bleeding on the ground. It's not nearly as positive as Stack Overflow. Um, tarot cards, the how yeah. you would go to a tarot card reading, but this is this is tarot cards yeah. for, for developers? We, we took the, the most um, positive and negative tarot cards we could find. There's seven of them. <laughs> I love this. We, we redrew them, blew them up, put them on uh, a four-foot, three-and-a-half-foot canvas, 
each. There's uh, now going all around our foosball area, and we replaced the headings. So instead of having a death card, we have an Internet Explorer card. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure Microsoft or anybody associated with Microsoft would appreciate that. Well, you know, if they're listening to the podcast, I'd love to have a conversation about some of the shortcomings. <laughs> I will we'll make sure they have your contact info. <laughs> yeah, please do. Uh, but, you know, you can walk around the office and you really do get a sense of what type of work we do and ideally what type of client we want, right? Part of my ideal customer uh, definition includes sense of humor, not a jerk, right? And, and, and we hope that you can come away from our office with that same type of feeling about us. And we really do want to make friends as much as we want to make sales. Have, have you ever had to turn somebody away because they lacked a sense of humor? Yeah, all the time. So when you come into our office, we have these motivational posters. And the occasional poster has a four-letter word in it that might be offensive in certain circles or in certain contexts. We don't, we don't find them um, to be a problem in our day-to-day. But every once in a while, we'll have a client that points it out and says, you know, I'm not sure if that's really a professional way to present yourselves. And um, what they're really telling us is that they don't share our sense of humor. And I'll ask them about that, and we'll have a conversation around what they find acceptable in terms of conduct and engagement practices. And, and if it's not a fit, I've become very comfortable in saying, hey, you know what? Might not be an ideal fit, right? Here's what we value in a client, and I'm hearing from you that here's what you value in a service provider. Um we don't want to be walking on eggshells much as you don't want to accidentally be offending anybody. Maybe I can make an introduction to someone that might be a better fit for you. And we're able to preserve relationships and become, you know, reasonably uh, friendly with clients, even when they don't work out for us. We're happy to make referrals if it's not the right fit. Do you find that these tactics of posters and defining your culture visually in your office are helping to save you pain that you maybe have experienced in the past around not having good cultural fit from a client or a team member perspective? Can you remember any time that you you had a client that got offended and it, it went south? So we've, we've been around a, a really long time in terms of web years, like, you know, the web age is faster than dogs. And, you know, to, to be in, in this business coming up on 12 or 13 years or whatever it is, we all start at the same place where any client is a good client. Do they have money? Yes, the perfect client, right? That's the, the defining criteria. And, and when you have those types of engagements where they might pay an invoice without any real consideration around the culture fit, around the congruency of our goals, around the um, similarity in our objectives and approach, when, when we're not considering those things, it's not even about whether or not they're okay with the occasional four-letter word. It's about, you know, do we even have alignment at um, a moral or ethical level where we can really get into a room and express the same types of, of goals for the project or for life, right? Because no one comes to you looking for um, a website. They come to you looking for whatever it is they think the website will achieve, right? And, and we need to be in alignment with those things. And yeah, absolutely. When we don't assess that alignment, and certainly in the past when assessing those types of qualities wasn't even part of the intake process, it was literally, you know, can you cover an invoice? You know, without those things in place, without those um, validation criteria in place, we really do struggle. We really do have um, conflicts where conflict ought not to exist. We really do have differences of opinion where 
our client perhaps is rejecting what we believe to be quality professional advice and direction. Uh, those types of things breed havoc in your project. And, and havoc in a project erodes margins, and margin erosion makes you unprofitable. And if you let that go unchecked long enough, you end up completely unable to be in business as long as we have. You end up, you know, realizing that your business is really not making money, and perhaps you go back to a job or try something else. And I really do think that failure to define first and second and force the culture of an ideal customer fit is is a huge mistake for those reasons. It, it really does matter. It really is important, not just for clients, but for employees as well. You just somehow connected putting profanity on the walls of your agency with your agency's margin, which I just I just want to call attention to because I think it's it's brilliant. And I just don't see that being done as eloquently every day. So I just want to give you props for that, Sheldon. So so I know you, Brent, follow uh, Mr. Vaynerchuk much as I do. And if anyone has made the case for profanity leading to profit, it's him, right? And and so we can all take our, our professional role models and model after them, whether it be intentional or not, and derive this formula where a little bit of swearing should equal some margins, and we can all be happy about that at the end of the day. <laughs> I was at, uh, I saw Gary speak at Traffic and Conversion last year, and it was it was really funny. I'm not that big of a, uh, a, a cuss word user, and everybody after his talk, everybody went out to dinner, and I, I swear it was somehow, it just had infiltrated the room. Like, everybody was <laughs> dropping, you know, F-bombs and all that kind of stuff. What is the uh, the calculation for dog years? I, I have to say, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what my internet year age is, and, and maybe there's something there. Like, is it is it seven seven times the years plus seven? Like, so you would be like 91 in, in internet years? Is that like the, the accepted uh, equation right now? Well, I mean, by by means of, of working with you gurus, I've I've been able to to meet and connect with a lot of younger business owners. And I don't mean younger in terms of of human years. I mean in terms of less experience. And and I can see the the differences in approach. And and I equate that with with this internet age philosophy that I have. And and if I look back at my career, you know, a decade ago. E-commerce was black magic. You know, we used to make a lot of money doing e-commerce, and it was because we had to deal with PCI compliance. We had to install our own SSLs. We had to do all of the complex integration work with a merchant bank, and we had to get through all of those approvals. And there was no such thing as a plug-in for a shopping cart. We had to build all that stuff, right? And, and there was a tremendous amount of labor involved. And only the most progressive, forward-thinking, and deepest-pocketed clients would therefore proceed. And if you fast forward a decade, you can get all that stuff for $20 on a Shopify account. And 10 years, to put it in perspective, is roughly the age from birth that it takes for a kid to master riding a bike with one hand or no hands. It's it's really not a, a tremendous amount of time when you consider how long people have been on the earth and how far the industry has come in such a short period of time. And, and so my thinking is that we get another decade out. Um, perhaps the web world doesn't even exist as we know it today. And I do see a pivot already into the Internet of Things. You know, we now have Internet-connected shirts that can monitor our heart rate. There are Fitbits for dogs that can tell a veterinarian that there might be a health problem in advance. These things simply weren't even conceivable a decade ago. So the rate at which things are moving, I think, is 
probably a lot faster than seven years like it might be in dog years, I, I do think that we're seeing astronomical leaps as it relates to technology. And the ability that we as business owners have to keep on top of that, I think really does determine profitability and margins over time. You know, it might be okay to sell a website today, but the barrier to becoming a web developer has gotten so much lower in the decade that I've been at this, where it's it's very, very difficult to compete for web business work. There's so many providers. Um, as a result, you know, my shop, we, we really do a lot more apps, mobile and web, and that's where we live and that's where we're comfortable. And because there isn't nearly as much saturation there, we're still able to do well there. We're not really fighting with each other for work. So like almost moving more into the the more complex stuff, uh, developing apps, developing custom software, government work, those are all much more complex than just getting a mainstream business online with an e-commerce cart. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't even limit it to the word complex. I would suggest that providing services in an area of less service provider saturation is really a profitable means to grow your business. So we happen to be in a more complex coding conversation, but there's nothing at all to suggest that doing, um, you know, building widgets for any specific industry that has never before had a widget builder, regardless of how small it might be industry-wise, uh, could yield to very large margins and very predictable, reliable, and scalable sales. Uh, and I do think that we're going to see that type of specialty growing and happening. Um, you know, even five years ago, building a website was was a really good, strong business. And now we find ourselves all the time competing with Squarespace for that type of work. There's a, a large evolution in the do-it-yourself and low-cost templated market. And I do think that sooner or later, that'll catch up to the app market. And, and I think that the ability we have to continue to iterate our services ahead of that curve uh, will continue to provide us with longevity and profitability. So thinking about that, why did you start your agency to begin with? Like to, to kind of go back in time to when you started this business 11, 12 years ago, what was the catalyst? Why, why do this instead of getting a, a job at a big, big product or software company? So I feel like like this is that inspirational question where I'm, I'm going to share a story about how the clouds parted, and, and it's simply not true. What happened for me personally was um, I did have a job. I was the, uh, the lead developer at another agency. Great people. I had a creative director who was, who was running that shop. And I consistently had the opinion that I could do it better than him, and I consistently disagreed with his direction. So I said, okay, well, maybe it's time for me to move on and do my own thing. And um, I picked up enough freelance work to, to get me by for a few weeks. A few weeks then turned into a couple of months. And before I knew it, I was out. I was freelancing. And then I picked up enough work um, to warrant bringing on some help. And, you know, if we fast forward a decade at 18 roughly percent growth year over year, uh, here we are. But there was never a concerted plan that said, I'm going to start an agency. I'm going to grow it by this magical means, and it's going to be reliably profitable. And certainly, we've made so many mistakes over the years that, in hindsight, we might have been a lot bigger today, or we might have been uh, smaller and, and much fatter from a, a profitability point of view. But um, I, I think that, in hindsight, 
had I had the foresight to write those plans, uh, much as I'm doing now, um, we would have been in a very different position. And and the moment that the clouds parted came, you know, years and years after the actual starting and creation of the business, which at the time felt like a fun thing to do today. And over the first few years was, oh, I guess we're doing this now. And that was really driven by client requirements and client requests, not by an overarching direction that I had set as it would be today. I'm, I'm always curious when people start their business, where they are in terms of their risk model, risk profile, uh, dependence, if you would say, right? Uh, when I started my business, I, I had very little in terms of uh, I wasn't married, didn't have kids. I basically had to support myself. What was your situation at that time? Did you have people that were relying on you? What was your kind of, how much were you risking at that time in your life? So at that time, I had just moved in with my fiance. Um, we're, we're now married, of course, with two kids. I, I had a couple of, of cars I was paying for and a mortgage. And that was really it. And at the time, that felt like a crushing amount of, of debt obligations to service, where the lady in my life, who's, who's amazing, she was really supportive. She said, you know what, go for it. Let's put a month or two in the bank, um, which is enough time for you to go get a job if it doesn't work out. So she was, she was very supportive and confident, but still acknowledging that I could fail horribly. She's always been there to, to back me up financially. Thankfully, she's, uh, she's working. And, and there have been times where I've had to lean on her or a credit line or whatever it is to get through the month. You know, payroll doesn't care when your clients are writing uh, checks on their invoices. So there have been stressful times. And at the time that it started, it was really an experiment. It was a, you know, can I make it through to the next month's cash flow? There was no interest in taking on uh, additional monthly expenses. And that really didn't hit home for me until my first employee had been with me for about uh, six months or so. And he came in one day and he said, hey, I just quit Safeway. Safeway being the grocery store job that he'd had for the last five or six years. He had just quit that job to be a full-time web developer under my employee. And, and this was a moment that I recognized where I should be congratulating him and saying, oh, that's amazing. That's awesome. Instead, in the back of my head, all I could think was, so this is your only gig? Like, like if I screw <laughs> this up, you're, you're not making rent? Like, you're feeding yourself based on what I'm doing? Oh please please goodness. tell me you did not try to convince him to keep his job at Safeway while working. I, I, I didn't. <laughs> but, but in the back of my head, all I heard was, oh, Sheldon, you can't screw this up. Because now there are people legitimately supporting themselves based on my efforts. And and that was, I think, the turning point for which I, I stopped thinking about my business as a freelance and fun way to pay the bills and as truly a business that, that had to succeed, notwithstanding any problems, it, it had to go. And, uh, you know, my ability to drive it then became a much bigger commitment than I think it had been prior to that, that moment. Was there a specific client or uh, a business partner or anything for you that became a turning point or a kind of a, a launch pad to growing your business into a bigger thing? Or was it, as you said earlier, just year after year of 18% growth, 18% growth, 18% growth? Was it, was there some kind of individual point that you can recognize today that was a big deal for you? Yeah. The, the very first client that put us on retainer, and this was at a time when I only understood the word retainer to be some ugly thing that lawyers did. We had a lot of work going on with them and, and they came to me and said, Hey, you know what? 
all these invoices are kind of a hassle for us to deal with. And, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm about to be fired. And, and my contact said, could we just put you on retainer and just deal with the hours instead of all this task by task stuff? And, and I said, well, okay. And I didn't really know what she was getting at at the time. And she said, okay, well, we're looking for about 100, 150 hours a month on retainer. And I said, okay, sure. And in the back of my head, I'm finally understanding they want me to invoice them for like 100, 150 hours every month. That was at the current rate that I was billing them. And therein lied a good profit margin. Therein was the opportunity to hire another person to achieve some savings and stability at home to uh, make those commitments that, yes, you can quit the grocery store and we can be all uh, good and happy with that. And it you know, really came down to, to things that people don't really think about. When you first start a business and you get an office, as, as I did at that time, you spend a lot of money buying stuff that no one really acknowledges, like desks and chairs and <laughs> coffee makers. And, you know, uh, at that time, we kind of had our own floor and I was out taking care of the toilet paper, you know, and, and when you have a budgeted line item, $50 a month for toilet paper, you can imagine everything else that the business is is covering that, that really goes unnoticed, unseen and unappreciated. And all of a sudden we had the bandwidth to take care of all those things and to grow. So that year was certainly better than 18%, but it really became a pivotal moment because now we had the ability to hire, to grow capacity, and to go out and take on more work. And we could do so without that constant feast and famine cycle that a lot of us go through. So it was really an important moment, um, defining moment. I can look back and say that was when uh, we really did achieve cash flow that was supportive of all the goals that I had formed. Is the guy that was working at, at Safeway, is he still on the uh, the Aquanode team? He is my lead developer. He's kind of a rock wow. star. He's, yeah, I mean, 10 years to be at one place is, is good enough. But in the web world, almost completely unheard of. He's my right hand. And uh, honestly, we would not have grown to the point that we're at without him. So his, his resume might literally say Safeway and Aquanode. I, I don't even know if he'd use Safeway. It might just say, call Sheldon. I do good work. <laughs> and hopefully he'll stay with you for, for more years than that. What have you done that has kept somebody like that on your team for such a long, I mean, that's, that's years, right? I mean, that's, that's over five, years, six, seven years. years. Uh, what do you do that keeps somebody like that so engaged in your team? Is it tarot cards and four letter words and foosball? Or is it, uh, is it the type of work you try to keep people engaged on? I think it's it's all of the above. I, I worked at um, a large uh, military contract company for you know almost a decade prior to this. And coming out of that experience, I had a list of things in my business I would not repeat and a list of things that I thought were, were pretty good. There were some ridiculous things that I said I, I would never do, not the least of which was dictate how you should dress. I think you're equally capable of writing good or bad code in a tie as you are in a t-shirt. So, you know, we, we did away with those things that weren't supportive of the company objectives. You know, we don't do annual raises based on your ability to continue to show up. It's based on performance, right? We've, we've maintained a very flexible culture and, and scheduling opportunity here because, again, you can write the code I need at 8 in the morning just as easily as you can at noon. I want to know when you're most effective. And, and we've tried to be as unconstraining 
as possible with staff while ensuring that work gets done. We've got all of the standard kind of benefit programs and uh, market competitive compensation, of course. But if you want to go do some training, go ahead. The, the coffee's free all day. The beer fridge is stocked. We also do a, a couple of, of unique things with our staff that has been very, very helpful, uh, not just from retention uh, standpoints, but from also a uh, team building perspective. You know, once a month we'll go do something, whatever it is. Uh, currently, there's a lot of rivalry around go-karts. Um, you know, we're, we're out racing quite a bit. And, and what's happening is the people that work for me form relationships amongst themselves. And when you work with your friends, it's a lot harder to leave. When you're happy with the work, which also has evolved, as, as I mentioned, um, you're constantly learning, right? And so it's, again, not monotonous. It's, it's a continually changing and evolving gig where you are always challenged and always learning. And my culture dictates that I'm only going to bring in people who appreciate the ability to always be learning, which has been very, very um, supportive of keeping someone like this gentleman for a decade. And then we also go through an extra bit of, of length to acknowledge things like his longevity. So five years, if anyone here makes it five years, I send them to Vegas with their spouse. I've had to do that three times now. We have three people here. Who are, you know, <laughs> Hopefully more than they come years. back alive and all in one piece. Well, we, we asked them to take a couple of magical photos and, and those go up on our wall. That's really cool. I just, I just want to put out to that. That's really cool. Well, and, and you got you to gotta acknowledge that stuff, right? My wife's been at her job for a decade now, and she just got a pen. And I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, in about eight months or so, when we hit the decade mark with, with this gentleman, I'm going to send him and his wife to Mexico. And uh, your pen's pretty awesome, right? I, I think giving people meaningful expressions of gratitude really does go a long, long way. At the end of it, I'm, I'm the employer that sent a guy to Mexico or to Vegas and no other employer is doing those types of things. Um, and it really does speak to my appreciation. It's not something that, that I have to feign. I, I really, you know, if you've been here five years, it means that, that we've not only made a lot of money on you, but that we've grown with you. We've taken your skills and put them into our saleable service list. And um, the company wouldn't be what it is without those people. Uh, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that, right? If those people go away, um, your your ability to have a conversation with Sheldon just got extremely compromised, right? I can't do what I do without my ability to lean on them. And, and they all know that. Even if it's not acknowledged, everyone kind of knows uh, where they sit in the chain of supply as it relates to what we're doing. I think it's really important to acknowledge that, to express some level of appreciation and to make sure that they feel that the work they do matters. Tell me a little bit more about how you reward developers, which I know that's the majority of your company, on performance. So you said you don't just give an annual raise, you you look at the performance. Is is that mean if you have no bugs? Does that mean how many billable hours you clock in the system? How do you grade a developer on performance? All of the above. So when we do an estimate and then we look at timesheets, we're, we're very, not necessarily careful, but, but aware of what the differences are between estimated and actual receivables. And, and that, of course, has a very direct impact on the margins. Now, if I have to go back to a coder time and again to talk about bugs and fixing that, that you know, that's got a direct impact on my margins. 
making that person less valuable. Possibly, right? There's also a conversation around what am I paying them? If I do a cost-benefit analysis on a junior versus my most senior coder, that, that person can probably make three times the mistakes and still be just as profitable. But that margin is consistent with what I expect to be a lot more training, right? There's time built into the equation for that. So it's very possible then to have someone sub-performing and still achieving a, a good billable rate. But I don't really want to be rewarding subpar performance. Instead, I want to have conversations that, that ask about what sort of training opportunities they could use. Do you understand how the estimate was derived? You helped me with this. You approved it. What sort of obstacles did you not foresee? Did I not foresee? What can we do better next time? And over the course of 12 months, if we're not seeing growth or change, um, that's a real problem. If we're not seeing that, that type of evolution over three months, I might even move to termination, right? It, it is very important to us that we be profitable in all things. And, and I think that the extent to which we reward, uh, much as it's based on profitability, doesn't really stop there. In fact, the, the most senior guy I have, the one we've been talking about, not the best receivables, but that's partly because he's got five other coders looking to him to answer questions. His day is constantly interrupted. And it's his input that helps to make the other five guys more profitable. And that drives my bottom line to a 5x um, conclusion. And I think that if we fail to respect and understand the rigors of each individual's day, you know, we would be doing that person quite a disservice. So it's very case-by-case, case, very individual, very recognition-based on, on what it is that they actually do and how much their contributions impact the company as a whole versus simply a conversation around billables and bug count, uh, for example. You've been uh, mentoring for our bootcamp program for a little over a year now. Is that right? Year, year and a half? Coming up on year and a half now, yeah. You're now making me think about the uh, if a mentor sticks around for five years, like what do I have to do? to reward them and appreciate them. But I'll, I'll, I'll put a pin in that and save that for, for later. But uh, for you over the last year, you've mentored dozens at this point uh, of, of folks, agency owners coming through our program. What's been a big takeaway from that experience for you? Uh, there, there have been two, I think, really big takeaways. First and foremost, um, you know, doing this, we all kind of work in a silo. Um, if I walk around the corner locally here and I stumble across another agency, I have no ability to walk in and say, hey, can I see your books? Let's talk about how you're bidding this project and can we share information? They're, they're not only going to laugh me out the door, they'll probably kick me out and lock the door behind me, right? That sort of thing is not done in common practice. And the net effect is that you don't really get the feedback that most business owners need around what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, where we can improve and how we can grow together. So even just by virtue of mentoring, I've been privy to a lot of confidence changes in myself. I've been able to approach my clients in a different manner because of my ability to express a lot of these tools and concepts in the bootcamp process. Uh, the other thing is, is the um, recognition and acknowledgement of what we do well and what we don't do well what we shouldn't be doing. And, you know, that only comes with conversation in um, a very open forum. And that's really what's been created by means of, of the bootcamp program. So, you know, the constant reiteration 
of the materials that I do as a mentor with all of my groups, um, while it's great for them and that's part of the program delivery, has also had a lot of incredibly positive effects for me. But then the further interactions that happen that are not scripted, that are not part of the planned program offering, that just happen generically amongst like-minded business owners, you know, that's produced all kinds of incredible results. To the extent that I'm not even sure what is the most valuable part of the program. (laughs) (laughs) It's all, you have multiple areas that have helped you. I mean, I, I think that's part of the the mentor experience at some level is that you're, it's not just the, the proven business system and the, the content at this point, the network and the organic material that you have to have learned over that period of time. And now, now you've been kind of in our programs or around us for almost a couple of years now. And, and in a couple of years, you can imagine that anytime I get into a bind, there are now hundreds, literally, um, if not approaching thousands of like-minded business owners that I can call and ask for help in every area of the business of the the industry. There's someone who knows more than me and I can go to them and say, Hey, how would you handle this? What do you think I could do differently? How would you pitch this? What sort of crazy bash command would you put in the terminal to achieve this end goal? Those types of conversations are happening all the time. And they're happening out in the open, uh, privy to everyone. You can ask anyone anything, and that just does not happen in a local context. So the value has been, you know, very uh, apparent in, in that regard. It's been absolutely fantastic. I was on the mentor Slack the other day, and you mentioned—I think it was you—that had a one of your your boot campers won a thirty thousand dollar a month engagement. I, I don't want to say who it is because it's uh, we try to keep that confidential, but. What did that feel like for you as a mentor to have somebody that you're mentoring have such a significant wind and windfall, win and windfall for their business? It's satisfying in a way that I, I can't even express. A lot of people in the 10K communities ask me why I've chosen to mentor. What do I get out of it? And it, it took a while for me to figure out what the answer was, but but I, I tell everyone now, it's because I'm not sitting on a seven-digit bank account. Right? I'm, I'm not banking millions at the moment where had I had the kind of mentoring and leadership that I think we're now providing to some of these newer um, business owners and service providers, I would be able to say I didn't make those mistakes because I had leadership in my life and in my business. And, and my hope for them is that when they get a decade into their businesses that they are sitting on a million dollars or more, if not um, – grossing that per year per month even so when i can engage someone in a mentor capacity and watch them go from a couple thousand a month to 30 or 50 um it's extremely satisfying because those are the stepping stones into some of the goals that i missed when i was at that stage and so you know you get a lot of admiration sometimes oh my goodness you closed a five hundred thousand dollar job it's like well sure but i'm a decade into this what if I'd done that in year number one? What would my jobs look like today, right? And, and a lot of them aren't really seeing that bigger picture, but I can see it and I can appreciate the path that they're on. And I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity to help shape that path at the right time in, in that process for them. That's really cool. Earlier, you talked about some Internet of Things type stuff where in terms of like the devices and some of the mobile technologies you guys are looking at. Is is that what is exciting you about your business today or 
you know, what kind of vision do you have for the future of your company? Well, I, I think that all things connected to a hand, uh, handheld device is, is going to be important. And I, I like the, I like any conversation that connects my, my digital life to my real life, to my home, to my clothing, to my car, to my, um, interactions with other businesses, be it a restaurant or a food truck or a uh, shopping center or, or anything retail. I, I think that there's going to be a lot more evolution in those areas over the next um, five to 20 years to the point where Minority Report might actually be the way that we live. Uh, you know, I can see that. I think the writing's on the wall. And uh, I'd very much like for my business to participate in that evolution to whatever extent we can find paying customers willing to support it. Do you ever see yourself being submerged in some kind of underwater thing with tubes hooking up to you to build uh, apps and mobile websites? I'm just trying to imagine the minority report of digital agency world. It's, it's possible, you know, maybe not that, that exact example, but <laughs> a couple of years ago, we, we did a coder challenge here where I asked everyone to, to take an RFID uh, fob and connect it to a beer tap. And I wanted everyone to have to tap in order to get their beer. And I wanted to know who was drinking how much beer over what course of, of time. And I wanted to be able to post that to Facebook in real time. <laughs> you, were, you were tracking your employees' alcohol consumption. I, I'm just curious if this made it to like a scorecard metric and was the goal to keep people drinking or to monitor that they weren't drinking too much? The, the goal was neither of the above, actually. And what happened was we, we had a keg fridge and discovered just how hard it is in an office environment to actually go through an entire keg before <laughs> before it spoils. But what, what happened was we, we had people now connecting flow meters to internet-enabled Arduinos that then pushed via a web service to a server and graphed in real time how much uh, liquid was going through a flow meter. And, and if you can pivot that perhaps into a water consumption conversation in your home or into a um, throughput conversation in an oil and gas context, you know, there, there really are some, some tremendous implications. The fact that it was beer happened to be the motivating factor for the learning that occurred. But um, the applications beyond that, uh, I think, were, you know, very, very positive for the business. And, and that knowledge has been retained. And and reinforced by means of making it a bit of a competition and everyone involved, I think had a lot of fun, which um, was a really, really good um, outcome, right? The objective was not really to graph beer. It was to learn how to graph beer. And then that was the, uh, the outcome that we, we achieved. And to that end, I think we were very successful. That's really cool. I, I hear from a lot of people that get really worked up about the commoditization of web or of you know websites or different technologies, and I, and I still see the overall digital agency market growing so rapidly. And I feel like getting into that kind of stuff. I mean, you're not obviously you know tomorrow going and leveraging that technology or that kind of Skunk's Works project for profit, but I feel like digital agencies are going to continue to be building you know development software tools, UIs for these different types of interactions and these different types of devices, uh, communications protocols between different types of devices. And I mean, just thinking about advertising and in, in the uh, the Alexa age and how, how all that kind of stuff is going to change. 
do you feel like you, you know, doing those kind of random projects helps you keep on the cutting edge or is there anything else that you do to make sure that you're not missing the, the next best trend? So I, I think that as often as possible, we are selling not necessarily at 20%, sometimes as much as 50% out of our comfort zone. And, and that'll involve me saying, yes, we can absolutely do this. Um, when in fact, perhaps we haven't even tried it before, but in theory, the ability to connect an Arduino to a flow meter really isn't that hard. And I'll be honest with my clients and saying we haven't done it before. Again, in theory, I know how to do this for you, and it's not going to be a problem. The ability to take in clients and find those needs and then deliver on them helps to pivot the business into some more, not necessarily cutting edge work, but very much out of our comfort zone type of, of growth and evolution and training. And, and that's then going to form as a foundational opportunity for everything that comes next. Uh, apart from that, you got to read. It's, it's obscene to the extent that news is available um, over the internet, you know, at a rate that has never been possible. If you look at 20 years ago, how people consume news and what's available to us now and the time frames we can get our news now, it really is incredible, and you can absorb what's happening out in the market, out in the world. You can see what Google's investing in, and you can kind of make determinations about where certain companies of that size and stature are driving things, right? And there are you know a lot of products that we uh, that we simply take for granted, like the Nest thermostat. You know, if you had gone back and said that, oh, yeah, and in the future, I'll be able to control the temperature in my house remotely from my mobile phone. And I'm standing there holding my StarTac 3000. <laughs> I, I would have told you, you're a filthy liar. Go away. I just I just remember one of my friends has StarTac and I, I thought it was so cool. I was young enough that it was like I was in high school, so I, I didn't get my own StarTech, but um, which is a good transition to our lightning round, thinking about books and other uh, useful resources that you can uh, tell our listeners that you uh, that you consume. Are, are you ready for the lightning round, Sheldon? Let's do it. Let's do the lightning round. All right. What is the best advice you've ever received? It's something I'm actually on the path to enacting only now, even though I was given this advice quite some time ago. Make the main thing the main thing. I've heard that before, and I've been a huge <laughs> promoter of that. I was like, yeah, Sheldon is, uh, that's good. I'm, you're listening. I like it. To, to the extent, Brent, and, and you know, for anyone that, that doesn't really know me, I've had a t-shirt shop for years. Uh, I funded a t-shirt shop for years. We're in the process of closing that down and focusing on what we do best and only that. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? The ridiculous tenacity to not give up. I think that you cannot be a business owner, go through a couple of bad days, and um, believe that you'll come out on the other side without having some sort of perseverance and, and hard work. I think Ashton Kutcher said it best in some um, presentation he made a long, long time ago. It's on YouTube. You can Google it. Success looks a lot like hard work, and, and you got to persevere through those things in order to uh, achieve success. Awesome. Can you share an internet resource or tool like Evernote that you think our listeners would love? I'm absolutely addicted to Trello. I found incredible ways to use that platform, ways that I had never uh, considered I would use it that I found extremely helpful. Um, very much addicted to that uh, that tool right now. And what book would you recommend and why? 
Uh, you know, another recommendation that I've pulled out of the uh, the Uyghurs community is essentialism. Protect the asset. I've, I've recently been reminded how important work-life balance is. Working to achieve professional success and maintain uh, maintenance of all of my margins and client relationships while ensuring that my kids and my wife and my home and my family and my health gets all of the time and attention that those things deserve has been a struggle, much as I imagine all business owners struggle. And um, I, I think that when you can put things in perspective, uh, such as a book like Essentialism will help you do. Um, awesome. So can you tell our audience about how they can find out more about you, where they can check out anything that you might have for them, learn more about Aquanode, all that good stuff? Uh, sure. Aquanode.com, uh, luminoweb.com. Send me an email, sheldon at aquanode.com. I think I have a bio page on the Uguru site. Um, generally speaking, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Say hello anytime. Most excellent, sir. Always love having you on the program. I uh, I feel like you bring a very pragmatic and margin-focused uh, presence to your agency, and I think a lot of other agency owners can emulate that and see how, uh, while being very uh, financially aware or, or profit-aware, you can also do fun things like send your team to Vegas after they've been with you for five years because that's good for the numbers. Uh, I think that's a really impressive way that you run your business and, and just have been so excited to see you grow as an agency and grow as an entrepreneur as well. So uh, thanks again for being on the program, Sheldon. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Brent. And I guess the standard is set for uh, mentor rewards at five years now, isn't it? <laughs> I will have to do some brainstorming maybe at our mentor retreat here in a couple of months. We can uh, we can uh, battle out of, about what, uh, what the five-year mentor reward should be. But uh, I can see that getting fun. So I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, it's just always awesome to have you on the program, Sheldon. Awesome. Thanks again.